Mary Richards, it's great to be here with you. Likewise, Lizzie Lasseter. Welcome to Somatic Self-Care. Today, we're continuing our conversation about the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Today, we're going to focus on chapter four, which is called Running for Your Life, The Anatomy of Survival. And we're going to talk about the reptilian brain, the limbic brain, the neocortex, empathy. But we'll begin, I think, with talking about trauma. He writes in the early part of the chapter on my printed book, page 62, uh, in the section called Uh, It's actually the very first section of the chapter, the last paragraph of the first section. I'm going to read it to you now. After trauma, the world is experienced with a different nervous system. The survivor's energy now becomes focused on suppressing inner chaos at the expense of spontaneous involvement in their lives. These attempts to maintain control over unbearable physiological reactions can result in a whole range of physical symptoms, including fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, and other autoimmune diseases. This explains why it is critical for trauma treatment to engage the entire organism, body, mind, and brain. So when I read that, it's all just underlined and starred and exclamation points in my marginalia here. I was like, wow, wow, wow. How do you think of this in the context of yoga, Mary? Well... I think that this applies beyond trauma as well. I believe as a yoga practitioner, and I have been a yoga practitioner for almost 32 years. I believe that uh, the body in particular is one of the most powerful gateways to our inner lives. And so it makes profound sense to me that whatever is going on in our hearts and minds is absolutely gonna play out in the body. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I was just struck by that idea that the world is experienced with a different nervous system after trauma, which gives me such an immediate flash of empathy for myself and my students who have gone through trauma to understand that the nervous system itself is shifted. Yeah. Because of this, you know, reality of our neuro anatomy and physiology, which is neuroplasticity, plastic meaning flexible. And the reality that what fires together, wires together. And when we experience trauma, our normal nervous system responses are blocked. Hence, the trauma. See, we have within our neuroanatomy various mechanisms for response to ensure our survival. And what happens with trauma is our nervous system responses, whether it's our ability to, you know, tend and befriend one another, 
or to fight or flee, those get derailed. Something prevents us from taking effective, successful action to help us feel safe, seen, and heard. And the thing is, the nervous system doesn't just go back to what would be called normal, you know, normal balance, right? No, the nervous system is fundamentally changed as a result of the organism's failure to successfully protect itself. Now, please understand this is not an indictment of character or anything like that. This is just your body saying, oh, that didn't work. That didn't work. And so what happens because we are wired to survive, the nervous system changes and develops other responses that it intends to be successful. So with individuals who are traumatized, you'll have some common hallmarks of trauma expression like hypervigilance. You can't relax because you're always on guard for threat. Now, a yeah. certain amount of vigilance, you know, is necessary, right? You, we do need to maintain situational awareness, of course, but hypervigilance is different. Yeah, I had a lot of that when my twins first came home from the hospital. I was very anxious about them dying in their sleep mm-hmm. and, or, or just that I wasn't going to be able to keep them alive in the, in the night. And that hypervigilance was extremely unpleasant. Mm-hmm. It was almost like an acidic quality inside my nervous system. Oh yeah, it does. It eats away at you. That's a, it eats away at you. That's why yeah. we'll manifest, you know, with chronic pain and fatigue and other, um, I use the term disorder um, just clinically, you know, and other disorders because, you know, there's an energy that has to be managed. And when the nervous system changed and if if we can't manage that through a combination of, nervous system rebalancing and um, executive function, you know, making sense of things, then where does the energy go? It will manifest in, in pain, Mm -hmm. some type of pain. Anything else you want to say here about trauma before we move on to some neuroanatomy? I would say that, you know, Bessel van der Kolk discusses in this chapter that there are two critical aspects of the adaptive response to threat, okay? And those aspects are the ability to process 
what happened and the ability to integrate what happened. So in order for us to recover our um, inner peace and return to the fullness of our brain function, we need to feel the feels and then put them in context. Are you with me? Yes, yes. Yeah. And that takes its own time. Right. You know, because this isn't a this isn't a rational or a logical process at all. It is uh, um, a primordial miasma of <laughs> uh, emotions and sensations and beliefs that are developed in the context of you know our communities. And if we're in communities where the context denies us our agency and our, uh, our, our autonomy to be authentic to ourselves, that just compounds things, you know? Yeah, reading this book is giving me a new perspective about the value of emotions. Mm. And two things, emotion, taking emotions more seriously and realizing that they are integrally connected to my visceral sense of well-being. And then the piece about social engagement and how much our emotional well-being lives in community with others. So, I, yeah, so would you ahead. say, Lizzie, that you're experience that you're reframing emotions as they're no they're certainly about you, but they're not just about you? Yes. And especially in the context of living with two, two-year-olds, you know, watching their emotional lives develop and my emotional life in reaction to their emotional lives and, you know, independently, I guess I had an underlying belief that emotions were secondary to the human experience, mm -hmm. that they were a luxury or, or a, a garnish. And especially that they, I, I didn't have this, the understanding that I'm gaining from this book about just sort of structurally that emotions are, you can't even say tied to because they are part of the physical experience, the somatic experience of being alive. They, yeah, I would say we can take that, you know, to, the degree that uh, body keeps the score does, which is that emotions actually are the uh, expression of our bodily sensations. That our lived physical reality is the taproot from which emotions grow. I mean, wow. All right, let's move to the what Bessel van der Kolk calls the triune or three-part brain. I'm going to read. There's a great summary. There's a figure on my printed book, page 69. There's a little summary that I'm going to read of this three-part brain. And then I would love to go through them one at a time, the reptilian brain, the limbic brain, and the neocortex. So he writes, the brain develops from the bottom up. The reptilian brain develops in the womb and organizes basic life-sustaining functions. It is highly responsive to threat throughout our entire lifespan. 
The limbic system is organized mainly during the first six years of life, but continues to evolve in a use-dependent manner. Trauma can have a major impact on its functioning throughout life. The prefrontal cortex develops last and also is affected by trauma exposure, including being unable to filter out irrelevant information. Throughout life, it is vulnerable to going offline in response to threat. I experienced that this weekend. I had a fight with my husband and I, and I just went totally, I could also not even in real time, but later realize I had gone completely away from cortex, Mm -hmm. completely away from rational thinking. And I was just in this emotional reactivity, I guess what he's describing as the limb. I was like just a full on limbic brain. Mm -hmm. And I did and said things, which now two days later, I'm like, I don't, I don't think that I don't believe that I don't want that. But in that moment, it was like the rational me had left the body. Yeah. Left the building. Yeah. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the, this, you know, what, what's important about this distinction, this neuroanatomical, what, what does understanding this help us? do? Why is this an important understanding, Mary, this three-part brain? So all of our systems, our three-part brain, everything about us is actually bioengineered for survival of our organism, the body, right? Uh, And the way our brains work okay babies you know they're just a bundle of sensory input and expression they live in the reptilian brain because you know they haven't acquired uh autonomous movement language etc very simple survival needs with baby and toddlers I like to maintain as a parent that, you know, the first uh, seven years of parenting are actually quite easy because the needs are so uh, in your face, (laughs) you know, and and, and parenting just complexifies with time, which I actually have really enjoyed as my kids' um, prefrontal cortices have come online more or less successfully. So you're saying like, you're saying your 20 year olds don't have arguments about who gets the big bike in the morning and who gets the little bike. Cause we had like a full scale meltdown this morning because Octo needed the big bike, but Felix had the big bike. Yeah, they, they do not. Now the discussions are, okay, which car are we going to take? And who's going to tell mom that the show is a hundred miles away and we won't be back until three o'clock in the morning, you know? Yeah. Very different. But uh, the, the, what's so interesting about our three-part brain, our triune brain is um, how the structures related to survival and our functioning as members of families and larger communities are uh, co-located with one another in the midline and central structures of the brain, okay? 
So the, the, the way our consciousness, for lack of a better term, works is uh, we take in all this sensory info about the outside world through our eyes, nose, ears, skin, right? And then this information that we're taking in from our organs of um, perception and sense, our, organ, our sensory organs, it goes to this thalamus, which is located kind of in the center of the brain and it's like Grand Central Station, you know? And what the thalamus does is it takes all of these inputs from the outside world and it basically filters and integrates them into uh, a, into coherence, like this is what's happening to me right now. And it relays these sensations to different areas of the brain. Now it's shortest, no, this is all happening simultaneously. You know, the thalamus doesn't prioritize the information, okay? It, but it, sorts it. Oh, you go, this information goes to this part of the brain, this information goes to th that part of the brain, etc. You with me? Yes. Okay. So these are all being, all of these inputs, the sensory data is being relayed simultaneously and the fastest route of relay from the thalamus is to the amygdala the, as Bessel van der Kolk calls them, the smoke detector yes. of our nervous system. I love that. In this chapter, he says, I call it the smoke detector, which I'm just picking up. It says it's to identify, the job of the amygdala is to identify whether incoming input is relevant for our survival. Exactly. Exactly. And the amygdala, they don't work on their own. They work in relationship with the hippocampus, which is the sort of the memory center, the filing cabinet of the brain. And the hippocampus is helping us contextualize information. These, is this new information, does it align with past experiences? Okay. So now if the new information is, um, uh, chill, you know, we don't feel a threat. Uh, we go about our business, we maintain our higher brain functions, our executive function, and etc. But if threat is assessed the by the hippocampus and the amygdala, the amygdala then sends sends messages, alerts, think of that smoke detector going off, it sends its alarm messages to, you know, the hypothalamus, the pituitary gland, the adrenals. It, it, it enlivens, initiates an entire hormonal cascade to activate the autonomic nervous system and prepare for action. So we can either Put, our, put the accelerator on the nervous system, think sympathetic arousal, or we can put the brakes on, think um, parasympathetic dominance. Okay, you with me? Yes, I just, I keep having to unmute myself because I've got some <laughs> to toddler background noise. I'm trying to no worries. Cover no worries. up. 
<laughs> okay. So, so then, okay. So this information's going, you know, to the amygdala, right? To the limbic system. All right. That's your amygdala, your hippocampus, your hypothalamus. Uh, okay. Uh, and simultaneously sensations are going from the thalamus to the frontal cortex, specifically um, something called the medial prefrontal cortex, which is located directly above our eyes. And Bessel van der Kolk refers to the um, uh, MPFC as the watchtower. Okay, so the medial prefrontal cortex is scanning all of these sensations and assessing information from the thalamus and it's and its executive capacities, the, corti the cortical structures of the brain are determining if the situation that we find ourselves in is dangerous or safe, okay? And it's making conscious choices for us. Right. All right? Okay, but sometimes, sometimes our situation can be so dire, the threat so imminent, that we that the that that the limb that the limbic and reptilian brains say there's no time for thinking we need to get out and we need to get out now and so we will have a system mobilization response designed to get us out of a situation and in that, when that happens, right, when that happens, when we get to a place of such arousal that it is a fight, flight, flee circumstance, these newer cortical brain structures responsible for making more, more conscious choices, uh, they go offline. Right, that's what I was experiencing in the argument. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it did feel like I went into this sort of existential threat place. Like it felt, I felt so destabilized, like as if the world is ending or like it just, I felt, yeah, yeah really, yeah. It, it really terrified. And, and so that's what you're saying that, that, that pro those, are, it's almost as though the emotional alarm system that goes off inhibits the thinking brain from doing its what it can to help us. Yeah, it's it, it, you know when you have um, a fire drill or maybe you're cooking and your smoke detectors go off. Yeah, it, you know you're you don't you may let's say you're cooking and you know that the house isn't on fire, right? right. Right. <laughs> okay. So that's different. You know, you, you, you're like, I'm cooking. There's too much smoke from, you know, whatever it is I'm making. The smoke detector has gone off. I need to open a window, turn on a fan, whatever. Okay. Right. Right. So that's, that's a situation. So totally everybody's online. Everyone in the brain is um, working together. Okay. But very different in the middle of the night, let's say it's, um, you know, oh, dark 30 and the batteries in the smoke detector have decided to die at this particular moment. And the smoke detector goes off in the middle of the night. Mm. You wake up. Have you ever had that happen, Lizzie? 
No. You know what I did have happen once we were traveling in India and we were staying at a hotel in a hill station and we, there were wildfires nearby and I smelled the actual smoke and everyone said, it's fine. It's fine. You know, the fire won't reach us and we can all go to sleep. But like, I couldn't sleep because mm-hmm. this alarm for me, the anxiety of that, <laughs> I know we're mixing metaphors now because this was actual smoke, but I was smelling that smoke burning far away. And I just couldn't tell my body to relax and go to sleep. Like I had this feeling the hotel's going to burn down in the middle of the night. Exactly. Your mobilization systems were turned on and they were, they stayed on alert. Your arousal, your survival arousal system stayed online because you still had tangible evidence of threat in the aroma of smoke. Yes. And like, I packed my bag and put it by the door and put my shoes by the door. And Nico was laughing at me, but I was like, I'm terrified. Like, I can't, I don't know how else to burn off this terror energy, but to prepare to flee the scene. Welcome to your limbic system. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. So this is fascinating, Mary. We're moving to close our conversation on this chapter. I'd love it if you could zoom out for us a little bit and help contextualize it, especially for yoga people who are our people. Um, Kind of give us a little bit of context or relevance to this understanding, this neuroanatomical understanding of the brain. How does it help us make better choices or how does it help us in our somatic self-care? Well, you know, Compassion isn't something that just happens, okay? (laughs) All right, Um, compassion arises from a wellspring fed by curiosity and understanding. Without a willingness to examine our experience and to seek a context for it, There's no way we can develop empathy and for compassion to arise. So the reason why it's important to understand how our triune brain works is because, especially for those of us who are yoga practitioners and teachers, we have techniques and strategies that we can use to help ourselves restore balance to our nervous system function, our actual physiology. And we also have tools at our disposal that will help us be kinder to ourselves. Because see, it doesn't do us any good to be kind to other people if we don't start with ourselves. And so many of us need to enemy image our emotions, in my opinion. We judge our emotions as these problematic things. And what I hope is clear in our neuroanatomy is that emotions are front and center. Mm. And they're back and center. And they're down and center. (laughs) You know, they are central to our experience of living. 
So the more attuned we become to how we are feeling in our bodies right here, right now, the more attuned and fluent we become in identifying our emotions and how our emotions are flipping switches in our brains to determine our behavior. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) Mary Richards, it's always a pleasure to spend time talking to you. Remind everyone where we can find you on the internet. You can find me online at yogawithmaryrichards.com across the board. Okay. And thank you for listening to this somatic self-care podcast. This is in our attempt at optimistic, enthusiastic cheerleading for simple ways that you can take better care of your sweet self. We absolutely believe in you. Bye-bye, Mary. Bye, Lindsay.